Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. I want to retap history, make my brain strong. No big words and keep it clean. No more than four pages long, can't you see? All this history is killing me. Thousands of pages and now I'm paper cut. Now I'll tell you what, to gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying art form. <coughs> Hello. I'm Tristan Bruns, and welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, a show about tap dance history and philosophy. Speaking of philosophy, this podcast may be the nichest podcast in existence. In fact, it's so specific, we might as well call it the Friedrich Nietzsche Show. You know, it's only a bad joke if you have to explain it, so I won't. You know why they don't make phone books anymore? Not because of caller ID, but because they needed the extra paper to fill the binders of the book What the Eye Hears, A History of Tap Dancing by Brian Siebert, who is not only the author of the book and a dance critic for the New York Times, but is also a tap dancer in his own right. I remember when this book came out in 2015 because everyone was excited about it. But we had heard rumors that it was a chim, lengthy. And the rumors were true. It comes in at about 540 pages, not counting notes and citations. That's not to say that it's all filler, quite the contrary. Like condiments on a Chicago style hot dog, Siebert really packs the facts into this book to the point that they're practically spilling out of the pages. On this episode of the Giffadaf podcast, I'm reviewing the book, What the Eye Hears. I'll fill you in on my own thoughts of the book, but also the author's thoughts from an interview that I conducted with Siebert as part of the 2021 Rhythm World Festival in Chicago. We'll also look at some of the responses and criticisms that arose shortly after the book was published. Um, a note on uh, the interview I had with Siebert, you are welcome to look it up, but be warned, I am not a professional interviewer. Do you remember those those fake interviews that Chris Farley would do on Saturday Night Live where he played an awkward fanboy who basically lists his favorite parts of his interview subject's own movie? Well, it's kind of like that. So don't be too disappointed when you hear me say something like, um, you remember that part where you wrote about um, Fred Astaire versus Gene Kelly? You, you remember that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Where did Brian Siebert gain the impetus to write a tap dance history book anyway? Well, to put it simply, because there wasn't one, or at least not the kind that he was looking for at the time that he was looking for it. While pursuing a master's degree in writing from Columbia University, Siebert changed his focus from travel writing to tap dance when, after his essay on something like, um, like dark tourism in Cambodia, nearly put one professor to sleep, he let slip that he was going to tap class right after. According to Siebert, the professor perked right up and said, You're a tap dancer, huh? Why don't you write about that? 
He had been attending Buster Brown's Crazy Tap Jam at the Swing 46 nightclub in New York and thought to write about that. But first, he would catch up on the history. And after some searching, he realized that there weren't many books on the subject, not like what he was looking for, that answered specific questions that seemed either lost to time or buried somewhere. So he decided to write the book himself, a process of research and revelation that took him approximately 15 years to complete. Quoting Siebert, quote, A Sunday session at Swing 46 felt like a family picnic because that was how Buster wanted it. Though he would consistently forget names or mangle them, he seemed to know everybody who came in. And if he didn't know you, he would soon. Have you got your shoes? He'd ask, encouraging anyone who wanted to dance, making sure no one was left out. Soon enough, Buster had me choosing a song and taking off into the unknown. And so it was that Brian Siebert, a bespectacled white guy in khakis and a button-down shirt, entered the Swing 46 mix. As I hopped on stage, Buster announced, Ladies and gentlemen, here's Dwayne! <laughs> I like that one. Um, well, that's an excerpt from the beginning of What the Eye Hears. The book begins with a humble and amusing anecdote, but then gets right to business and proceeds to give a chronological history of tap dance, beginning with the very origin, or should I say origins, of tap dance. Siebert attempts to collect the various theories surrounding the conception of what is tap dance and lays them all out, putting their strengths and weaknesses on display without completely agreeing with any of them. The goal seems to be giving credence to the hard work of historians past while leaving it up to the reader to ruminate on by themselves. Siebert told me, quote, If there was enough evidence in any one thing that I thought this was the story, I would have done that. Where I didn't see that, I try to give you as much of the complexity as possible, end quote. A small detail that makes what the eye hears stand out in the origin department, it mentions Africa first. I've read a lot of short, medium, and long tap histories, and the one thing that is consistent is that out of all the cultural influences that make up tap dance, the number of times Africa is mentioned first between 1890 and 1990 is close to the same integer as I count in my students. And a one, and a two, and a, and that's about it. I even asked Siebert point blank if putting Africa first was intentional, and without missing a beat, he said, quote, Yes, end quote. The rest of what the eye hears is a fleshed out account of the history of tap dance, sectioned to coincide with the evolution of the modes of its presentation. Theater, movies, television, theater again, sometimes music albums, painting a picture of tap's turbulent timeline that may rub some readers the wrong way. The account of blackface minstrelsy here, in a rare move, predates the creation of Thomas Dartmouth Rice's wheelin' and turnin' Jump Jim Crow, while also taking a look at the complex and baffling psychology of how white people could celebrate black culture while at the same time oppressing black people. Echoing other contemporary works like Eric Lott's Love and Theft and Thomas DeFrance's Dancing Many Drums. In What the Eye Hears, themes of racist and class suppression pervade each iteration of tap dance, 
From vaudeville's segregated touring circuits to Hollywood's racially stereotyped roles for black performers. And by the time you reach the end of the 20th century, you have a pretty good understanding of why tap dance took such a sharp turn towards social justice in the 1990s, with the Broadway show Bringing the Noise, Bringing the Funk, a particular nut that Siebert goes to great lengths to crack. And crack a few nuts, he does. As stated earlier, Siebert works as a dance critic for the New York Times, and his two cents can be found scattered throughout the pages of the book. And the tone of his criticism gets sharper the closer he gets to present day, the closer it gets to stuff he's been alive to have seen. In particular, the period most heavily criticized is the period of the late 1970s up until the end of the 1980s, dubbed the Tap Renaissance by dancer, producer, and writer Jane Goldberg, in which a resurgence of interest in the art form was brought about by mentor-mentee partnerships between an older generation of mostly black hoofers and a young generation of eager, mostly white, female dancers of diverse artistic background. It was a time of experimentation and risk-taking, which doesn't deter Siebert from pointing out what he sees as the flaws in the women's dance styles, compositional techniques, costumes, personalities, and later, uh, even though it is non-malicious in its context, makes unflattering remarks about one woman's weight. What may be even more difficult to the reader is some of the dirt Siebert manages to dig up on some of tap dance's greatest mysteries. Namely, why is there less footage of some tap dancers than there are of others? And if so-and-so was so great, how come I've never heard of them? The answers are some heavy stuff. In some tap dance circles, I imagine this kind of talk is tantamount to blasphemy. But when it comes to knowing or I'd rather not knowing, I personally want to know, even though it hurts. And that's Siebert's position, too. Or as he puts it in our interview, quote, There's a lot in the book that nobody ever bothered to define before. That was one of the great excitements and joys of doing the research. You read some stuff about Groundhog, and then I found two more articles about him. And that went from this, and he holds his hands real close together, to this. And he pulls them apart. A little bit, but that, that's enough to get him excited. And he finishes by saying, and then you, you can really start to flesh out the picture a little bit and see who this person was. That was always amazing to me when I could find that, end quote. The part where Siebert's critical muscles flex hardest, in my opinion, is during his section on hoofing in Hollywood. You can all but make a side-by-side -side comparison of Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, from their body of work to their compositional styles, their influence on music and cinematic special effects. At one point, Siebert describes Astaire's tap style as airy racket-making, <laughs> while acquiescing that Kelly, as a tap dancer, was the lightweight. I mean, he really wallops him. But the pictures created of both men are so three-dimensional it made me start to track down clips and movies of both Astaire and Kelly to see what aligned with Siebert's analysis, and in the end, made them more human to me. The real-life stakes that they worked against seem even higher now. By the way, Siebert confirmed that Astaire is indeed the winner in our interview when he said, quote, Another way to say that is that he's a jazz dancer in a way that Kelly isn't. Later in his career, Astaire made this album with Oscar Peterson. Gene Kelly could never have done that. 
All of those songs were made for Astaire, first of all. Like, the entire catalog of the American Songbook. But the idea of jamming with a real group of jazz musicians is not really in Gene Kelly's wheelhouse. End quote. The 1990s to approximately the 2010s takes up a, a, a big section and includes facts and commentary on such milestones for tap dance like tap dogs, river dance, and the whole noise funk generation. As Siebert makes it sound, this was two decades full of innovation, explosive self-expression, a reaffirmation that tap dance is alive right, and thriving, but also two decades of rage and anger, hyper-masculinity, and racial hypersensitivity, inclusive to some, exclusionary to others, and exclusive to few. The whole era is fascinating and well worth the read. Siebert emerges from under all of this as optimistic and ends the book with a list of contemporary tap dancers whom, in Siebert's opinion, are poised, ready, and capable of ushering tap dance into a new and better era. As the author puts it, quote, I think that the field, for a lot of the 2000s, well, Savion Glover's dominance was overshadowing, and Savion's great. But there are other tap dancers. I feel like in the last couple of years, that imbalance has shifted in a lot of ways. Michelle Dorrance has come up, and Ayadeli came up, Dormisha. I mean, there are other people coming up, and they're getting attention. They're getting opportunities. And I think that's really good for the field, to see a little more diversity. It's not just one dancer who is holding out the whole form. End quote. As promised, we will take a look at some of the reviews of the book. But first, I would like to quickly remind you that you can support this podcast, its host, but more importantly, the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy, by signing up and supporting us on Patreon. 50% of all support, and that's uh, money, by the way, goes to the community education and tap dance programming that the Tap Academy is known for. Also, where I record this podcast. Check us out at madrhythms.com for more information. Reception of what the eye hears has been mostly positive from critics, and the book has won many awards and accolades, being called a, quote, fascinating, sharply written cultural analysis, end quote, in Publishers Weekly, and that, quote, Siebert documents every stage and hoofer with passion, intelligence, and details, end quote, in Harper's Magazine. However, not every critique of the book has been positive, and some are downright jaw-droppingly negative. Critic Joan Acasella, in a review titled Up From the Hold, The Story of Tap in the New Yorker, questions Siebert's need for so much inclusivity, writing, quote, If this attitude is one of the book's beauties, it is also the source of what I think is its one serious fault, which is that it includes too much. He found out things that he couldn't bear not to use. So by inclusivity, she means... Um, you know, just amount of content, not inclusivity of diversity, right? Siebert agrees with this critique, telling me that the more he thinks about it, he would have tightened it up in places too. Akasella also finds fault in the, quote, unvarnished racism of much of the historical material, end quote, and that Siebert, quote, doesn't tell us to get mad at these things. He lets us get mad by ourselves, end quote. A good point, but other than a few more jabs at the reprinted content, Akasella's review is overall positive. You know, the book's girth is a big critique coming from a lot of tap dancers, too, that the sheer volume of the text is daunting. 
Although, fortunately for Siebert and his publisher, the tap dancers usually make this critique after purchasing the book. There are many a copy I've seen sitting on friends' bookshelves and in Mad Rhythm's director's offices that are left pristine, untouched, and unread. Jane Goldberg, dancer, writer, and self-proclaimed tap goddess from the Lower East Side, wrote a critique of sorts, but not about the book per se, but about the last review by Akasella, like a, like a stacking Russian Matryoshka doll of dance criticism. It's called Credit Where Credit Is Due, a letter to the editor, in parentheses, of The New Yorker, and is published on thinkingdance.net. In fact, a number of Siebert's critics reference and tear apart Akasella's review of the book almost as much as they write about the book itself. And it's all because Akasella wrote about tap dance, quote, it could die. The classic dance forms of India have almost no audience outside the festivals. The same could happen to tap, end quote. Now, let me tell you, people hate when you mention dying and tap dance together. T take the name of this podcast and accompanying Facebook group, for example. Periodically, you can count on someone not getting the joke and writing a serious response that, quote, you know, tap is not dying. And they'll write this to me. You know, tap is not dying. How can you say that? I'm watching someone tap dance right now. How can it be dying? And I'm, I'm literally looking right at it. What a, what a mean man you are. You're just so mean and much, much shorter than you look in videos. I, I, didn't, I didn't know you were such a, such a little guy. He's just a little... Another review of the book is by Deborah Cash in the Artsfuse blog titled What the Eye Hears, putting the wrong foot forward. <laughs> or sorry, putting the wrong foot first. I mean, both are good. <laughs> the, the, the latter is correct, but it could have gone either way. Cash is not a fan of the book, accusing the book of creating dissonance in the tap community, stating that, quote, the book's release should have united the struggling global tap community. Instead, it has been a time of retreating to corners and taking sides, end quote. What apparently really offended Cash was the marketing for the book, particularly uh, had a problem with the back of the pre publication promotional postcard where in bold font caused cash to momentarily <gasps> lose her breath what was written was quote the first comprehensive and authoritative history of tap dancing one of the great art forms along with jazz and musical comedy created in america end quote this was so upsetting to cash because another tap dance history book, Constance Vallis Hill's Tap Dancing America, had been published five years earlier. And this postcard back text was enough to warrant nearly three pages of criticism, where Cash accuses Siebert of attempting to, quote, erase the history of recent scholarships, end quote. And that the book has unleashed something uh, uh, that she can only describe as, quote, a tap world pissing contest, end quote. Ironically, Cash concludes her review by measuring Siebert's measly top 20 tap videos on his website with Vallis Hill's massive online 3,000-item archive maintained by the Library of Congress. So, I guess the point of this review is that there's a pissing contest, 
and that her favorite of the two books can piss further. Well, good point, I guess. By far, the harshest review I could find of the book came from the Los Angeles Review of Books titled, are you ready? Tap Dancing. Reports of our death have been grossly exaggerated. Written by writer, tap dancer, and choreographer Margaret Morrison, who says flat out, quote, If you read Brian Siebert's What the Eye Hears, A History of Tap Dancing, you may get the impression that tap dance is dying. End quote. Woo! Here we go! Oh, this is great. So, oh, man, I'm ready. Sounds like this is the right podcast to talk about this type of stuff. And excuse me while I take a deep dive into this review, which I find equally fascinating, uh, a little problematic, at times contradictory, and ultimately disappointing. To start, Morrison opens her review by listing a nearly identical list of tap dance's current practitioners that Siebert does at the end of his book, The Success of Doris and Dormisha, right, for example. But she uses them to prove her point that Siebert thinks tap is dying, which is strange because that was the point of the end of his book, to use those same dancers as examples of, of how it was not dying. I don't know. Uh, Morrison's main qualm is not what Siebert writes, but how he writes it. Uh, but also, she totally hates what he writes, too, saying that, quote, he routinely fails to put biased pronouncements from the 1790s, 1890s, 1990s into their historical or cultural context, end quote. And that Siebert, quote, instructs his reader to avoid essentialisms and consider the socially constructed idea of race. That's good, right? But he ignores endemic racism, and uses his prodigious skills as a wordsmith to recreate supremacist structures, end quote. Similar to Akasella's assessment of the, quote, unvarnished racism of much of the historical material, end quote, but what is never mentioned by either Akasella or Morrison is, well, how does one show historically racist material appropriately? Siebert at no point condones these antiquated advertisements and calumnious critiques, but he also doesn't include an asterisk next to each one that leads to a footnote that says, FYI, this is racist AF, BTW. And should he? Is it the writer's job to tell the reader that, you know, the N-word is or isn't racist? I mean, this is not a beginner's history book. And I fail to see how an educated reader, or even you know, someone of the laity would need this type of hand-holding. Never mind that Siebert mentions often how white dancers appropriated from black dancers, a theme that takes up more than half of the book, uh, from T.D. Rice to Anne Pennington to George M. Cohen to Fred Astaire. Morrison further accuses Siebert of supporting the privileged patriarchy by writing that, quote, the book marginalizes women's contributions, end quote. Now, it's true, in the early pages of the book, there are long droughts of women dancers, with only a sprinkling here and there. And this dissipates the closer the book comes to modern day. But is that because Siebert found them and cut them out on purpose? Or is it due to the fact that, you know, we're kind of beginning Tap's documented history in blackface minstrelsy, which was very much segregated to women performers, even in a time when it was not that taboo for women to be on the stage? 
Yes, there is much more written about men than women in what the eye hears. But there is also much more written about women, many of whom are incredibly obscure, than I have read in most, maybe any, other history book. Two sides, same coin, you decide. Morrison writes that, quote, Siebert unwittingly perpetuates ideas of the criminal black body by framing the 1950s bebop tap artistry of Baby Lawrence and Teddy Hale with repeated comments about their jail time, end quote. Yes, those parts, as I mentioned in my review of the book, are tough to read through. But let me ask you this. Where is all that Teddy Hale footage? Where is all of that Baby Lawrence and Groundhog footage? Gregory Hines says that, you know, his favorite tap dancer as a kid uh, was Teddy Hale. So, so where's all the Teddy Hale clips? Well, the answers are not pretty and are absolutely besmirching of the, you know, mythological godlike image that many tap dancers carry of these men. People tattoo their names on their arms. They dress up as them and put on whole pantomime performances, even full-length shows. But we only think of them as myth and legend, even though they were alive not that long ago, because we don't have any other data to go by. It seems that Morrison might rather keep those real histories of tap dancers swept under the rug, maintaining their nice saintly mythologies, rather than introduce people to the actual human beings, so we can understand them better and perhaps learn lessons from how they lived their lives that may be even more valuable than learning about how they danced. I agree with Morrison when she says, quote, Siebert neglects to provide footnotes for large sections of writing, end quote, which is true, and you have to go to the back of the book, read the note, and try to figure out if it corresponds to the text in question, or not, and sometimes there is no source. Or is there? Sometimes I gave up searching, so that's a good point. Sometimes, Morrison pulls in other authors to wage war against Siebert as a military general calling in reinforcements and invokes black lesbian social critic Audre Lorde and her famous aphorism, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, in order to accuse Siebert of rebuilding the house of white supremacy with a, quote, new 21st century platform for racist language, end quote. Holy smokes, that's, that's, that's a big one. <clears throat> uh, Morrison tags in African-American feminist scholar Bell Hooks, end quote, using samples from her 2004 book, We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity, to condemn Siebert for revealing the mysterious absences of certain black male tap dancers, like Lawrence and Hale, due to their sordid pasts. Again, I get how telling these ugly histories are offensive, but using bell hooks to prove your point is, is an odd choice for me. Right, hear me out. Bell hooks, to my understanding, is a larger proponent of realizing racial and class intersectionality and feminism as an end to sexist oppression over male racial uh, oppression. Uh, including Hooks as backup to prove a point seems to ignore her earlier scholarship, not to mention that one of the, the sordid pasts we're talking about of a dancer not yet named here deals with sexual violence towards women. Does Morrison wish that that, that one taken out too? Or does that one get a pass and gets to stay 
but that we should ignore the, the other unfortunate events, even though there are victims there too. As Bell Hooks writes in her 1984 book, Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, we are compelled to, quote, centralize the experience and the social predicaments of women who bear the brunt of sexist oppression as a way to understand the collective social status of women in the United States, end quote. Like I said, there's something to learn here, more important than tap dance, even though it's ugly. Morrison accuses Siebert of ignoring the historical contributions of two other important authors, Eric Lott, author of Love and Theft, who I mentioned in my review, and, once again, Constance Vallis Hill and her book, Tap Dancing America. Morrison writes, quote, Siebert ignores Hill's and Lott's scholarship and broadly dismisses the current body of research in pre-20th century dance and minstrelsy, end quote, and argues that, quote, Tap dance historians must contend with multiple complexities, what scholar Eric Lott in Love and Theft calls the terrible pleasures of minstrelsy, end quote. Morrison is referring to the idea that blackface was more than just a theater format and costume, but was also a means of perpetuating black oppression, which it was. And she's accusing Siebert of just kind of glossing over all that stuff. But here's where Morrison contradicts her point, in that she misses the dual argument of Lot's book. Yes, Love and Theft refer to the idea that white people stole black culture to make a buck, while simultaneously being genuinely attracted to it, right? Theft and love, love and theft. That's true, but many people, including Morrison here, I believe, miss Lot's underlying socialist and Freudian dual theory that the cause of minstrelsy is also about an increasingly unstable white working class struggling to hold on to one of the few things they believe that they own, their social identities. Or as Lott puts it, quote, It is fitting that the minstrel show began in this way, for its institutional popularity may be said to have sprung up as part of the crisis of hegemony brought about by the forward march of capital in the early republic. If early minstrelsy's contradictory appeal had been subtended by the class warfare that marked most of the 1830s, its plot and types already hinted at the uses of minstrel acts for whites insecure about their whiteness, end quote. In the same paragraph, Morrison quotes from Siebert's book, saying, quoting Siebert, blackface minstrelsy was and was not about black people, end quote, and writes that Siebert is, quoting Morrison, demonstrating a lack of awareness of the way minstrelsy's degrading depictions of blacks pervaded every level of U.S. culture, end quote. But that was Lot's point, that blackface was indeed more than just a commodity created by cultural mixing and appropriation, was more than a means of, of just black oppression, but also that it acted as a signifier meant to bolster insecure white racial identities. Thus, Morrison only acknowledges one of Lot's points, minstrelsy's potential to forge an interracial working-class abolitionism, but fails to acknowledge his other argument, the ambivalence of the blackface mask as a cultural sign. As for Siebert ignoring or erasing Vallis Hill's scholarship, as Siebert told me during our interview, that when he was doing the bulk of his research, Tap Dancing America didn't exist yet, which if it had, he made have not written his book in the first place. So 
you know, not sure how you can use or reference something that doesn't exist unless he's expected to rewrite his whole book 10 years into it because someone got to it first. Oh, who knows? Maybe he should have. That's, again, for, for you to decide. Then there are the insults. Morrison calls the book, quote, some bad press, end quote. Siebert's writing structure is described with a poop joke. Quoting Morrison, like a seagull, he flaps sand in our eyes and poops on the way out. End quote. Poop joke. Nice. Morrison jabs at his profession, writing that, quote, a historian has a higher responsibility than a New York Times dance reviewer. End quote. Except that, well, isn't the bulk of our historical sources on pre-20th century dance mostly reviews from critics and authors, which are then collected by historians? Am I wrong? It feels like you could go chicken and the egg with that one. Morrison equates Siebert's coverage... Oh, this is a bad one. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Morrison equates Siebert's coverage of tap dance history to that of Fox News's coverage of President Obama. Holy smokes, that's... Ooh, that's, that's a tough... That's, do we need to bring Fox News and Obama into this book review? I, I'm not so sure. Ouch. Morrison calls his descriptions of women flaccid. Penis joke. Nice. She mentions tap dance and death so many times in this article that it should have been named What the Eye Hears. Tap is dead. Tap is dead. Tap is dead. Which is an actual quote from the review. She says it three times in a row like that. But the most condemning part, in my opinion, is when Morrison argues that there is zero value to anyone who might want to read this book. It's too long for the casual reader, too dense for the layman, too full of hate speech for high school and college students, not for professional tap dancers, uh, as there are too many misrepresentations, read ugly history of some of the greats, and it would hurt our feelings too much. So who is this book for? Well, I guess all that are left are degenerates, like me. And Siebert, who Morrison derides for not having included in his book a personal examination of his own, quote, participation in the United States' power structures, end quote. Except that he kind of does. I hate to give away the end ending, but Siebert gets personal in the final pages, admitting that, quote, examining the whole of that history, meaning tap dance, as much of it as can be found, has consequences. Encountering any tap dancer, I am now ultra-sensitive to influences, aware of distinctions between illusion, imitation, and originality, clued into stolen steps and what's been done with them, end quote. Now, it not be as much as Morrison would like, but one thing that you can't say is that Sieber doesn't at least acknowledge the Du Boisian concepts of the veil and double consciousness and, you know, and, and where he himself sits in that racist, structured social hegemony. Why am I going on about this review? Well, I'll tell you why. Here's where I do some philosophizing, sort of. I believe that, and this is my opinion here, I believe that, are you ready? I believe that reading books is good. Hear me out. When What the Eye Hears first came out, 
everyone I talked to about it said the exact same thing, that they heard that it was racist. They had already bought it, but were afraid to read it. And probably still haven't as of the airing of this Gasps episode. But writing comments on social media message boards dissuading other people from reading this racist book was, of course, not a problem for them, and sharing Morrison's review was all the ammunition that they needed to prove their point. Again, without actually reading the book. Over the years, I have encountered this same phenomenon where someone says that they heard what Siebert wrote, uh, something terrible, and were disgusted, only to be confused when presented with the actual page that what they heard was not exactly what they read. Well, it's still a little mean, though, was the usual retort, which is fair. Siebert, when critical, prefers the bludgeon to the blade, and that's on him. But to the point of writing about someone that they uphold racist structures, I mean, I read the book twice, and I I just vehemently disagree. I'm surprised that a community notorious for its thick-skinned history completionists, for them to not read a book, opposed to reading it and coming to their own conclusions and perhaps agreeing with the critics. If anything, I believe that we should read all those books which society deems taboo, dare to read Hitler's Mein Kampf, crack open Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Old Virginia, take the bell curve, and well, okay, maybe not the bell curve, because uh, that's trash. Um, it's a garbage book that belongs in a garbage book can uh, taken to a garbage book dump. Uh, but by all means, max out on Marx and Engels' The Communist Manifesto. All of them. Don't be afraid. Reading a book doesn't turn you into a sectarian racist communazi in the same way that watching a horror movie and playing Grand Theft Auto does not turn you into a bazooka-toting psycho-serial killer. What the Eye Hears is not a perfect book, and Siebert's critiques can be harsh, and I do not always agree with their tone. But I believe that the amount and organization of the historic research makes it a valuable resource for tap dancers, choreographers, writers, and a general public consisting of a variety of ages and levels of academia. That is, if they aren't too scared to read it. But... That's just a gasp from a dying art form. Thank you for listening. I'm getting zero money from Siebert uh, or his publisher for this review, only from our Patreon member, Pamela, who trusts me to be honest. And even half of that goes to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy to support their wonderful community-based programming. Again, I receive no sponsorship outside of the show's patron, uh, so if anyone writes a scathing review of this episode and causes hundreds of tap dancers to not listen to it, you can be confident that, for me, it was not worth it. Before you go, it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. This week on the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. On episode 52 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, the Tap Dance Podfather, Travis Knights interviews dancer, choreographer, and 2018 Hoofer Award recipient, Katherine Kramer. Knights and Kramer discuss practice and pedagogy of moving through sensations. 
or one becomes almost omniscient of their body and its surroundings. Super cool stuff. Knights reveals that he had a rough time post a recent Vancouver Tap Festival that he helped direct, and the two discuss what it is like to transition between the statuses of mentor-mentee. Or mentee to mentor. Actually, in this episode, it goes both ways. Uh, they talk about how that feels and how it changes over time and with age as you get older. To quote Kramer, quote, Mentorship is about life, not art, end quote. On episode number 42 of the Half Tap Shoes Will Travel podcast, host Rick Oslin wishes a happy birthday to Dr. Jenny Lagan and interviews dancer-musician, friend, and artistic director of the Rhythm Street Movement Dance Company, Ricky Mylan. And the tunes start off talking about Mylan's kids, who have the best names. You guys. I am Jelly AF. The talk turns to a discussion about the jam, and the connection that we feel when we are in the jam with other people, with Mylan offering the sage aphorism, quote, in the jam, you have to find the people you are with, and they have to find you, end quote. Mylan informs us that the internet can be used for more than just politics and regales us with a poignant tale of what happened after he po posted randomly on Facebook, quote, who will pay me $25 to come tap dance in their driveway, end quote. Or I'm paraphrasing, rather, sorry. It's actually a pretty touching story. Um, it really is. Mylan also talks about needing help getting the word out about his website, rhythmstreetmovement.com, and their various social media the platforms, so help them out and visit all of those things. To wrap things up, Rick and Ricky have a passionate and fond remembrance of Tap Shoe Matt Schroepfer. I mean, not a remembrance, just they're talking about him. He's very much alive. Matt is alive. Nobody freak out, right? Uh, Matt is the, if you don't know, Matt is the proprietor of Dancing Fair, right? a Tap Shoe uh, company, uh, who gives this podcast no money, so I can honestly say is my favorite place to get Tap Shoes from and is 100% due to the people that work there. Also, Myland has a need to rap, and does. On episode number 88 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast, host Hilary Marie gives us her top three mistakes when practicing fast footwork. I won't give them away, but I will say that I am part guilty of one of her critiques about putting your practice videos online. But I, I really tried to make them good, you know? To help you along, Hillary offers a fast feet and phrasing course on her website, itaponline.com, where she breaks it all down for you. Hillary developed her own method of picking up speed and clarity from a drummer acquaintance, and those cats really know their stuff. So, so check out episode number 88 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast and visit itaponline.com today. They also give me no money, and what the hell am I doing here? I should be trying to squeeze all of these different groups for... On episode number seven of the Real Talk Tap Talks, Shuffle Life Productions presents part one of the Acknowledgements series, where hosts Nico Rubio and a cavalcade of amazing tap dancers give voice to the names of legendary tap dancers, some of whom are very well known and others who are more obscure, but nonetheless important. This episode is meant to be a resource for people looking for new inspiration and want to learn about the history. And there are some deep cuts in here. I was surprised that I didn't know about maybe like 20 near the end. Shame on me. But I was proud of some of the ones I did know, like Will Mastin of the Will Mastin Trio, 
with Sammy Davis Sr. and, and Sammy Davis Jr. And it's only 15 minutes long, but if you pause and write down every name, it actually takes closer to 13 hours to listen to. Uh, but hey, that ain't bad. Check it out. Alright, thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. I want to recap history, make my brain strong. No big words and keep it clean. No more than four pages long, can't you see? All this history is killing me. Thousands of pages and now I'm paper cut. Now I'll tell you what, to gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying art Okay, I think they're gone. Welcome to the bonus section, where we wait an unreasonable amount of time to throw off the squares so that we can talk like the circles that we are, I guess. Listen, I do not dislike Margaret Morrison. Au contraire. I mean, I've been to her website and watched all the tap dance videos. I enjoy her writing. I, I love her essay titled Tap and Teeth. Uh, that I quoted in another episode, I just found this one review particularly acerbic and, and felt the need to balance it out a little. And let's be clear, there isn't anything that I can say that will or should bring Miss Morrison down a peg. Her history of giving to the art of tap dance is monumental and prolific. And even when it gets me going, her writing makes me feel things. So you should definitely check out any Margaret Morrison dance and literary work that you can find, of which there is an impressive oeuvre to discover. Please visit MargaretMorrison.com to sample her work, read of her accolades, and see, hear, and read, I mean, some really great stuff. She's a very important tap dancer, and from everything I have seen and read, I am a big fan, and I mean that sincerely. Special thanks to our Patreon supporter, Pamela Hetherington. Uh, right now, I only have one, and that's fine, because that's not what this is about at all. Uh, currently, though, we're up to, I'm happy to say, we're up to $35 total. I haven't cashed the Patreon out. I'm waiting so that I can really do something with it. My current goal is to reach 100 bucks to replace our door handle at the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy, which has never worked well and is only getting worse. Just imagine... 30 years from now, people will be enjoying the smooth, perfectly circular movement of this door handle, keeping this safe space secure, knowing that we did that. A tap man's got a dream, don't he? I would like to say thank you to Ricky Milan for buying me those fish and chips and an ice-cold pilsner at Gluck's at the 2021 Twin Cities Tap Festival recently, where I performed with my good friend Devon Suttles. 
And shout out to the Rhythm Street crew. Anna, Hillary, Ashley. Um, see, there's like there's one or two names I'm forgetting. Right? I said them over and over. They saw me saying over and over to remember. But listen, Mylan, put a cast list with pictures on your website so I can pretend to remember names next time. Thank you. Oh, and I implore you to read the book, uh, mostly because I just want to talk to people about it. You know, there are good parts, bad parts. I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's not perfect. But I would love to have someone to talk to about it. And when I'm, you know, interviewing Siebert in a room with a bunch of other people in there, the only two people that had gotten through the whole book at all was me and Siebert. So, you know, part of why I sound like a nerd when I'm interviewing him is because I've never been able to actually talk to anybody in the last six years about this one book because everybody owns it. No one's read the whole thing. So, so please read the book so that we can talk about it. I want to hear what you have to say. Please, please, please read a book. Please, please, please read a book. Okay, that's really the end. I'm sorry.